Our scripture this morning is from the book of Genesis, chapter 32, verse, verse 22 through 31. The same night he got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and likewise everything that he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is that that you ask my name? And then he blessed him. So Jacob called the place penal, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penol, limping because of his hip. This is the word of God for the people of God. Speak to God. Thank you. So we are continuing today in our best stories ever sermon series. And the passage that you just heard in Genesis 32, when I told my husband that this is the passage that I chose for best stories ever, he said, what story was that again? Who's Jacob? Wait, how does this happen? But I promise you that that while this passage might not be as well known as Noah's Ark or Daniel in the lion's den, that this is one of the best stories in the entire Bible. It contains all of the elements necessary for a good story. Flawed and messy characters, check. Mystery, check. A divine encounter, check. A struggle, check. And a resolution that even leaves open the possibility of a sequel. All present in this story of God wrestling with Jacob. Now, when I became a new mom, like a brand new mom... I remember being overwhelmed with protective instincts, unlike any I had ever known before. And not for nothing, but I was born and raised in Philadelphia, and so I had thought my protective instincts were quite intact. But even a rough-and-tumble Philadelphia upbringing didn't prepare me for the instincts that came over me when I became a new mom for this new internal security system that took over what used to be my brain and body. Maybe some of you can relate. So our firstborn child joined our family while we were stationed at Travis Air Force Base in California. And David was delivered by, I believe, a foot and ankle specialist who just happened to be doing a rotation in OBGYN. You gotta love military medicine, right? It was, it was a great, it was actually, it was actually an okay experience. But it was my first pregnancy, and so I didn't really think to question at the time that the only thing that Dr. Reese and our baby likely had in common was that Dr. Reese specialized in feet, and from everything that we could tell, praise God, our baby had feet. So we get home from the hospital, and all of a sudden, these protective instincts, like, take over my mind. And I become this, like, breath and heartbeat checking, soft spot protecting, 
diaper monitoring to make sure we were hydrated, door and window locking champion. This was apparently my new purpose in life. Can anyone else relate to doing this or to seeing this happen around you? So at night, before putting our baby to bed, I remember worrying out loud to my husband. I was worried that someone was going to break into his bedroom window and steal him or cause him harm. And my husband, likely confused and possibly scared about who this new me was, tried to reassure me. Yeah, but we're in a safe neighborhood. And by the way, the bedroom is on the second floor and there's not any decking or footing below it. So crazy new person. There's like zero chance that someone is going to be scaling the wall. But did that stop me from checking the doors and windows every night? No, it did not. I checked the doors and windows every single night. And I also, several times a night for those first few months, would go into the baby's room and make sure that he was still breathing. You see, God, by design, creates all of us, all human beings, to need the care and the nurture and the protection of a loving parent or guardian. By design, every single one of our needs as a human being needs to be met by someone other than ourself, at least initially. And for us, those who were born and raised in America, we are like radically independent, or at least we think we are. We think that we don't need other people. But when we reflect on how God creates us and how we enter this world How humbling that is. And how it should cause us to stop and reflect about the design that God has built into humanity and our need for one another. So I can only imagine that God, through our biology, had programmed some of these protective instincts into us. Now, fast forward a year or two, um, when our firstborn became a toddler, I remember my husband beginning to wrestle and tumble and even kind of like throw him up into the air for fun. And from an observer's perspective, at least, these odd behaviors seemed to be instinctive to my husband. They, it seemed to be like his way of connecting and bonding and even teaching our son. Now, I don't want to get stuck in gender generalizations, not even for a second, because I think men are more than capable of being nurturing and compassionate and protective in healthy ways. And women are are certainly capable of rough and tumble play. And indeed, we often do fulfill either or or both roles as necessary or as the situation warrants. But still, as I was studying and preparing and praying over this message for the week, a passage where God, taking on human form, wrestles with Jacob all through the night, I couldn't help but remember and be reminded of how profound it is that God has created each and every one of us to be both protected and nurtured and challenged and wrestled with. We need to be nurtured and we need to be stretched. And it's not either or. 
We need both. And when people tend to fall in the extremes of either category, either overly protective or overly rough, social scientists would tell us that something was broken along their own relational journey. God has designed us to need both. So what is going on in our passage today? What do we know about the characters and the main character? Well, we know that Jacob, who is our main character, is the grandson of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Ishmael, and then Isaac, and Isaac and Rebekah birthed Jacob and Esau, who were twins. We know also that just through those three generations right there, that there was a ton of dysfunction and drama. Has anyone read Genesis? There is a lot of drama going on there. And and I can almost promise, or at least I hope I can promise, that if you think your family has drama or dysfunction, it likely pales in comparison to the dysfunction and the deceit and the incest and the polygamy and the downright abuse that has occurred in just that family line right there. We know that Jacob and his twin brother Esau began struggling in utero. They had like a nine-month-long wrestling match going on. Genesis 25 tells us about this. And that wrestling match culminates in Esau being born first. And does anyone know what it tells us about how Jacob was born? Grabbing Esau's heel. So Esau was born first, and then Jacob is born kind of grabbing his brother's heel. And this wrestling and this struggle continues throughout their lives. We know that Isaac, the father, favors Esau, the son, and that Rebekah, the mom, favors Jacob, the younger son. If anyone has ever observed or been part of a family where there is favorites, you know that that is going to cause some strife and some drama. So the boys grow up, and at some point along the way, Jacob convinces his older brother Esau to sell him his birthright. And with the birthright would have come the family name and the inheritance. And Jacob convinces his brother to sell that to him. So he gets the birthright. And then we're told that Rebekah, the boy's mom, takes it a step further and helps Jacob deceive her husband their father, into also giving Jacob the blessing, which would have sealed the deal. He got the birthright, and then the father gives him the blessing, and he gets the name and the inheritance and carries on with life. This happens as Isaac is pretty much on his deathbed. He was old, he was blind, Scripture says, and so they were able to trick him. And so this deceit, of course, infuriates Esau. And Esau pledges that he is going to kill his brother Jacob, but only after the boys are done mourning the loss of their father. How nice of him. And the drama, it doesn't even stop there. We're told that Esau goes off and he marries several Hittite women, which were outside of the group of people he was supposed to marry. And Jacob goes to live with his uncle, and winds up marrying two sisters who also happened to be his cousins. I told you there was dysfunction in this family. 
But I tell you all of that, actually, just so that I can simply paint the picture that relational deceit, relational deceit, and all of the ugly cousins that that will give birth to had become the norm for this family. Relational deceit was the norm. Maybe some of you can relate. If not to deceit on that level, maybe to lesser deceits. And if not to deceit, can you relate to the dysfunction and the drama? We know in Scripture that the dysfunction didn't begin with Jacob and Esau. But here we are in Genesis chapter 32, and at this point, these brothers are essentially estranged. They're living in separate areas. But this estrangement and this brokenness was haunting Jacob. Broken relationships, unhealed hurts, when we haven't reconciled in some way, those things tend to haunt us, don't they? We're told that that, that this estrangement was haunting Jacob. You see, one of the things we know about God, one characteristic of God is that God is perfect relationship. Not God desires perfect relationship, which he does. God is perfect relationship. And God cares about our relationships, of course, with God and with one another. But this passage also highlights to us that God cares about our relationship with our own self. I think this is something either we don't think about often or that we brush aside Or we just think that's a lesser than. But this passage reminds us that God cares about how we see ourselves, how we name ourselves, the identities that we claim, and how we relate to ourselves. And God cares like a perfect parent who knows when we need to be loved and nurtured and protected and reassured. And like a perfect parent who knows when it's time to challenge us and stretch us and grow us. And the latter is what we see in our passage today. It reminded me that protective measures when taken too far, when we operate overly protective way, that we will stifle the growth that God has intended for us. And on the flip side of that, If we operate in ways that are too rough, then we will stifle the compassion and the empathy that God intends for each and every child that God creates. I think it's safe to say, and I'm pretty sure social scientists would back this up, that a universal truth for all human beings is that we can only be wrestled with and challenged and stretched only after, if and when first, we first know that we are safe and secure and protected and loved. We need to know that we are safe and secure and protected and loved before anyone can begin stretching and challenging us. It's why I think the first instincts to kick in are the ones to be safe, to make sure that children are safe and protected and no harm can be done. If those baseline needs for safety and security are not met, people can't be stretched and challenged because it will come across in a way that instills fear and in a way that will cause human beings to retract. 
What do we see happening in our passage? We see that God shows up in this mysterious human form, which is something that fascinates me. God could have shown up in any number of ways, but chose to take on the form of a human being that this was not overbearing to Jacob. It didn't make him scared. He actually thought he could wrestle back, and that's what we see in this passage. God took on a form that made sense to Jacob, and God wrestles with Jacob all night long. But that's not the best part of the story, in my opinion. The best part of this story is that as God is wrestling with Jacob, despite all of that dysfunction and deceit and deception and sin that happened before, God doesn't mention it once. Not one word about Jacob's character flaws, not one word about his sin, not one word about the ways that he has messed up or could have, should have, maybe done better. God doesn't mention it. God simply wrestles with Jacob. And in that wrestling, what I imagine to be happening is God turning Jacob's head to the right to see things a little bit differently and turning his head to the left to see things differently over there. I imagine that God turns Jacob's perception inward and has Jacob look at himself as God sees him. I imagine that God then turns Jacob's vision outward and has Jacob look at the world and situations and other people and his brother as God sees them as well. If God would have mentioned Jacob's hang-ups or hurts or sin, the lesson that God was trying to teach Jacob might not have been heard or understood. It might have even caused Jacob to let go of God in that wrestling match and not stay in the ring. And God knew better. And scripture tells us as daybreak is approaching, and one of the things about God in the Old Testament is that you can't see God face to face and still live. So as daybreak is approaching, scripture says that God was not even prevailing in this wrestling match. And so God strikes Jacob on his hip and knocks the joint out of the socket. So now Jacob has acquired a limp, but even still in that limp, God and Jacob are intertwined, not letting go of each other. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. Reminds us how committed God is to this relationship. And God has to ask Jacob to let go, which we know really God didn't have to ask Jacob to let go. But in this story, God asks him and Jacob refuses to let go until what? Until until God gives him a blessing. And Jacob wants the kind of blessing that only God can give. There are blessings in our own life that can only come from God. Now, as this blessing, as a prize for staying in the ring, God changes Jacob's name from Jacob, which essentially means fraud, to Israel, which means one who has struggled with God. Our scripture says, one who has struggled with humans and God and has prevailed. What a bold statement that is. Jacob's blessing was that his name had been changed. Have you struggled with God recently? 
Have you struggled with other human beings? Basically, are you alive? Have you seen God in the struggle? Have you been able to see things as God is trying to help you see them? Now, when we become human parents, some instincts kick in. But truth be told, none of us know what we're doing, whether we birthed our child, children, adopted them, or are fostering them. Doesn't, none of us really know what we're doing, do we? Let's be honest, right? So what do we do? We get books, right? Books are going to give us the answers. So that first child that I was telling you about, when he came home from the hospital, he was not a sleeper. He wouldn't take naps. Has anyone had a child that just refuses to go to sleep? You learn early on that you can't force a child to sleep, no matter how tired you are. But the books said the child, my baby, should eat and then play and then nap. That was the cycle. Eat, play, nap. That's what it said. It sounded simple. I can follow books. I tried to do this. My baby mocked the books, didn't care one bit about what the book said. And um, I grew to hate that book, and it landed in the fireplace that first Christmas. <laughs> Babies don't care about our books. So anyway, we figure out, you know, what works for one child. We acquire some skills. We stay in the ring. We get knocked down. We lose some sleep. We wind up limping from time to time. And God is growing us and stretching us as we are committed to staying in the ring. And then we learn what works for one child and we think we know things and we try to apply that to another child or another person. And we soon learn it doesn't work that way. What has worked for one child or one person isn't going to work for another child or another person. We have to learn as we go. We learn by staying in the ring. God is not us. God does not have to do that. God already knows the perfect mix of nurture and compassion and protection and challenge and stretching that we all need. God knows that how he wrestles with you is going to be how, different than how he wrestles with you or with me. God knows that the form that he needs to take as he wrestles with you or with you or with me is going to be different based on who we are and our experiences. God knows. Our passage today reminds us that God is committed to the relationship and committed to staying in the ring with us. God is committed to the struggle. We see that in our passage today. We see that God initiates the struggle and that we are invited to accept. We see that God is not going to shame us. God doesn't call us names. God doesn't want to berate us or tear us down. God wants to, for each and every one of us to see that we are beloved, that we are chosen, that we are adopted, that we are created in God's image. God wants us to see those things and will wrestle with us until we can see them. And I think God does this with us individually. And God also does this collectively as the church. I think we are in a season, as we've been in history times before, where God is stepping in to the rink and inviting the church, universal, into a wrestling match. I think God is inviting the church to remember who we are. And God is turning our heads to the left and to the right and asking us, is Jesus our Lord? Does Jesus have our allegiance? 
Do we remember why we are here? Do we remember why the Spirit birthed the church? Do we remember our commission? And I think God is in the ring wrestling with us as the church. And our passage shows us that God is committed to the struggle. And if we're willing to stay in there with some faith and and some sweat, that we might come out with some clarity and a renewed sense of purpose. Our scripture also teaches us that God wants us to have a blessing, each and every one of us. God wants us to have the blessing that only God can give and that God wants to change all of our names. Perhaps you've acquired some names along the way, either names you've come to believe about yourself or names other people have told you about yourself. Perhaps you've come to acquire an identity that doesn't reflect what God sees in you. God wants to take all of those names that we have acquired, fraud or wanderer or deceiver or uh, second best or not good enough. God wants to acquire names that we've acquired that don't even reflect things that we've done but that have been done to us, abused, neglected, unloved, uncared for. Our passage today reminds us God wants to take those names and bury them. God wants to take those identities and bury them and give us an identity. Like when God changed Jacob's name to Israel, it changed his identity. It changed the course of action for history. God wants us, through our identity in Christ and our belonging in the church, to have a new identity and a purpose that changes the course of, course of, of our life and the direction that we take from there on out. God wants us to have that blessing and that name change in our identity that can only be found in Christ so that, like Israel, we will give birth to things that reflect God's truths and not perpetuate the chaos and the destruction of the evil one. God cared about Jacob's relationships, all of them. And God cares about our relationships too. God cares about how we see ourselves and the names that we call ourselves. It's very often in the dark of night when we're confused, when we're lost, when we're struggling, when we can't see clearly. It is very often in those times if we are willing to allow God to wrestle with us that God will be preparing us. God will be preparing us in those times for the work that God has prepared for us. God wants us to accept the invitation because there's work for us to do. Not the work that God in Christ could do. Only Jesus could do that. That burden is gone. We're not him. Thank God. But there is work that the church is called to do. And in those dark nights and those wrestling matches, God will prepare us. God will give us clarity and vision and strength if we allow him. Jacob's blessing was given, was being given a new name, Israel, one who struggles with God. And so I wonder, what names are you walking around with? What is your struggle? 
What lies may have you come to believe about yourself? Are there any limps that you have acquired along the way? Do you see them as gifts? Are you able to recognize God in your struggle? Are you able to recognize that God will take on whatever form God needs to in order to get through to us? Do you see in you what God sees in you? What names has the church taken on? What identity has the church assumed? Is the church willing to be wrestled with? What name is God trying to give the church? What might God need the church to see that we haven't yet been able to see? Are we willing, as individuals and as the church, to allow God to introduce us to the blessing? We will never see some of the greatest joys that God has in store for us in this life if we are unwilling to accept God's invitation to struggle and wrestle with us, to take away things that don't reflect God's truth, and to give us instead an identity and a name that reflects who God calls us to be. Are we willing to accept God's invitation? And are we willing to be so bold as Jacob was, as to refuse to let God let us go until God, like he did with Jacob, gives us our blessing as well. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.